Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. Ted Kennedy, John McCain, Bo Biden, they all died after developing a brain cancer called glioblastoma. If there's one cancer you don't want to get, it's this one. Unlike other cancers that often develop as lumps with defined margins in the breast, say, glioblastomas not only present with a central mass, but also send out microscopic tendrils into the brain, making them impossible to remove completely without damaging our most critical organ. Worse yet, it's hard to get powerful cancer drugs past the blood-brain barrier to attack glioblastomas. But Dr. Santosh Kesari, MD, PhD, is more optimistic now about treating this dread disease than he has been at any time in his career. Neurosurgeons have better technologies allowing them to better remove what they can, and neuro-oncologists like Dr. Kesari have promising new tools available like immunotherapies and targeted treatment protocols. Listen to our conversation with Dr. Kastri to find out what treatments make him believe that big breakthroughs are on the horizon for treating this tricky and tragic disease. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's start with something very basic. What is neuro-oncology? Neuro-oncology is the subspecialty of neurology and oncology that focuses around cancer in the brain, whether it's benign tumors or more malignant tumors. <clears throat> in addition, we also focus on complicated neurological syndromes of the brain that are involved in cancer patients, such as autoimmune disorders of the nervous system due to cancer. In addition, increasingly in the new era of checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy for cancer, more and more patients are getting side effects which involve the brain. And so we're also dealing with those types of issues. Okay, so it's not just surgery for you. Correct. That's a lot of it. Correct. Okay. So in terms of the whole field of neuro-oncology, yeah. we obviously have surgeons who mm. do the surgical part of it. We have radiation oncologists for patients who need radiation. And we have medical neuro-oncologists of which I, I, I participate as in the team of taking care of patients in terms of managing and giving chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapies. Okay. So now you deal with some of the cancers that really nobody wants, uh, one being glioblastoma, correct? Correct. Talk to me about that. What is that? Glioblastoma is a malignant cancer of the brain, the glial cells, the, the supporting cells of the brain, the astrocytes, the oligodendrocytes. And these cells are the supporting function of the brain, but they can form tumors. And those are what are called generally as gliomas. And glioblastoma on the spectrum of gliomas is the worst malignant brain tumor with a very poor prognosis. Oh. This is the same tumor that Joe Biden's son died of, that uh, uh, Kennedy died of, and many others. Um, and so one of the tricky parts with this disease is the fact that uh, it tends to infiltrate into the brain. And that's a reason we can't cure most patients. Uh, meaning that most of the tumors in other parts of the body, you can take them out and you have a good margin. Uh, but in glioblastoma, the cells are already infiltrating into the normal brain. You can't see it. It's microscopic. 
So when we take out the tumor, it's really just the tip of the iceberg. Oh. And so that's why we have such difficulty. And unfortunately, the drugs that we use don't really 100% get throughout the brain. So the, you said support cells for the brain. Uh, they're not brain matter? No, they're brain matter. Okay. They, um, there's neurons in the brain that okay. are what we think are the thinking parts of the brain. But the astrocytes and the other glial cells support the neurons and do support cognition and other brain functions. If you have abnormal gray matter, you, you know, white matter, you will have problems. So, okay. so I, they are an important component of the brain. Okay. So the thing that makes glioblastoma so scary and dangerous is the fact, is what? That you can't get all of it? So several, several reasons. Yeah. One is obviously you're, you can take out half your liver, no problem, right? Sure. The rest of the liver yeah, functions yeah. as well. But the brain is specific and localized function. Your language is in a particular area, your motor function. So if the tumor involves those specific areas, you're going to have significant neurological deficits. And so you can't go whacking out everything that is in the brain because you could affect your brain function. So that's one of the big challenges that we can only take out what we can safely without causing a stroke or further deficits, number one. So that limits the amount of tumor you can take out. Number two, um, well, on, on the first side, but with minimally invasive techniques, advanced imaging, we can actually do optimal surgery, especially with the team that we have at BNI. Uh, but number two, really, the drugs that we're using uh, just don't get in well enough. And maybe we haven't developed the right drugs that are really targeting this in the best way possible. Most of the drugs that we use for brain tumors, we repurpose from other cancers and just mm -hmm. try them for brain tumors. And they don't have the best properties of getting into the blood-brain barrier. Only is that a handful the issue? Is, is it the blood-brain blood barrier that's the problem? That is one of the big problems, okay. correct. So the, the fact that we can't do full surgery, the fact that there's a blood-brain barrier, and then it is a very resistant disease. Mm. It's very heterogeneous. Uh, eat, you put 100 patients in a room, the tumors are all different. If you look at them under the microscope, really? if you look at the genetics, there's so many mutations in these tumors. So highly heterogeneous, high variability, genetically and morphologically and functionally. So that's why one of the reasons. And then fourth reason is really stem cells. You know, there are, in cancer these days, we think about the stem cells, the cancer stem cells that are potentially the ones that are resistant to all the treatments that we give because they're slower dividing. They don't respond to radiation and chemo the way faster dividing cells would. And so these are, these are the challenges uh, that, um, that we face. Um, and actually the fifth thing is um, uh, uh, immunotherapy. When you, immunotherapy works, seems to be working for every other organ system in the body very well. Mm. In the brain, we've been using it and trying it, but um, uh, the inflammation in the brain is just not tolerated very well. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Because you tend to get swelling and you tend to get symptoms, headaches, seizures, etc. So that's why we have to think of this disease as a very complex disease, and we have to have a lot of different minds thinking about it clinically and scientifically Absolutely. to get you know, the, best, uh, the best outcomes possible. So what is the blood-brain barrier? So the blood-brain barrier is a barrier of most drugs getting into the brain. It's the blood vessels with the brain cells, the astrocytes, endothelial cells, 
there's it, it's different than all the other organs. It's a little bit more tight so that most drugs, most viruses, infections, etc., have a difficult time getting through. And as you can imagine, evolutionarily, that's a very good thing because the last thing you want is an infection in the brain that you can't control. So it's a functional barrier. It's a real structural barrier uh, that pre prevents toxins from getting in as well as infections from getting in. So it has a big role in normal functioning physiology. However, for cancer, when you have a cancer in the brain, it also limits drug delivery into the brain. And that's one of the challenges. So one of the things is most drugs that we have don't get in very well. And so when going forward, and currently what we're trying to do is strategize when we develop a new drug for brain cancer is to make sure it gets through the blood-brain barrier in a very effective way. Are people, use, people are using repurposed viruses to deliver drugs now, is that correct? In terms of clinical trials for brain cancer, we're using many, many different approaches and technologies. From minimally invasive surgery, and at the time of surgery, doing intraoperative radiation, or giving drugs and chemotherapies at the time of surgery that would stimulate the immune system. To uh, what's called convection-enhanced delivery, where we're putting catheters into the brain and giving drugs over many hours that would distribute into a larger area of the tumor and based on the imaging and where the tumor is located. And, and then we're trying systemic therapies where we're injecting drugs or immunotherapies, oral or IV, to try to get uh, killing of the tumor in different ways. When somebody comes in with symptoms, um, how does, what does glioblastoma look like? The presentation of patients with the brain tumor is very variable. From asymptomatic patient has an ear pain or hearing loss for some other reason, like a viral infection, and they get an MRI or a CT scan that shows a brain mass. That's rare. Uh, most patients present with symptoms of headache, vision problems, seizures to the emergency room, or mm -hmm. cognitive dysfunction or behavioral changes, as subtle as that, like almost like a dementia-like presentation. So it can be quite variable. Um, Probably more than half the patients present acutely to the emergency room because they've had a seizure or severe headaches and they're getting weak on one side like a stroke. Um, and other patients more subtly with cognitive uh, symptoms and you know fuzziness, behavioral changes <clears throat> that is thought to be depression sometimes. And so they come more of the outpatient route and then get an MRI, someone orders an MRI. So it, it can be quite variable. And does that all depend on where the glioblastoma is in the brain? Correct. So as we know, the brain is, uh, has different areas, speech, motor function, vision. And so based on where the tumor is growing, patients have symptoms related to that. We've even had patients where they've lost vision on one side and they presented with repeated car accidents, always hitting a car on the same side because oh, they couldn't see on that side. So it is very variable. So when somebody comes in, how do you evaluate them? So when someone presents to me, much of the time they do have an imaging that shows a lesion. And that's where I come in to figure out, is this lesion benign or malignant? Is it sometimes infections or inflammatory as well? So we have to do specialized imaging, uh, MRI, and then we do other specialized sequences such as spectroscopy or perfusion to help better understand what the nature of the lesion is. Uh, so we can sometimes just tell from the basic MRI 
but the extra MRI sequences help us. And this helps in the surgical planning, because if you're leaning towards more in inflammation or infection, usually you just want to do a biopsy. Uh, but if you're definitely, it's tumor, you want to try to plan to take it all out. So that, that imaging is a critical part of what we do day in and day out, and for initial diagnosis, but also for subsequent monitoring of the disease over time. This is imaging beyond the straight MRI. Yes. It's imaging uh, with MRI, with special sequences, uh, as well as we incorporate neuroimaging modalities, spectroscopy, et cetera. Okay. Then what? You determine that somebody's got a glioblastoma. What happens next? We then, as a multidisciplinary team with our surgeons and radiology and radiation oncology colleagues, think about the next steps. And now what we're trying to do going forward is really think about everything at the initial diagnosis. A lot of the things that we do, we kind of see patients after surgery, and then we plan the next step, radiation, chemo, and then unfortunately most patients progress within 6 to 12 months, and then we have to do a clinical trial or some other treatments at progression, which is usually not very effective. So what we're trying to do as a multidisciplinary team is think about the patient from day one, what, we, what can we do from the beginning that's going to change the trajectory of the disease? So for instance, if we're going to operate on this patient, should we think about other things at that time? Should we do uh, treatment in the cavity, give chemotherapy, give immunotherapy, give uh, radiation therapy at the time of surgery? At the time of surgery. Yes. It's a completely different approach and way yeah. of thinking about the disease that, because you know what we've learned over the last two decades is when we do uh, the initial treatment of surgery, radiation, and chemo, we know what's going to happen. It uniformly comes back. Under the standard? Under the standard treatment. Regimen. Okay. But see, most of our trials, though, however, are treating at recurrence, you know, later. And it just hasn't been a very effective approach. So what we're trying to do is innovate and change, bring all the new treatments up front, test all the new treatments from the beginning. Because that's where we're going to have the most impact at the so time of diagnosis. You're you're doing the chemo, or the radiation, and or the radiation at the time of surgery when you say the brain is open. Right. So there are approaches. For instance, there are older approaches of at the time of surgery putting in a a, a chemotherapy wafer that you can leave in the surgical cavity. Uh, it's an old technology, but you know proof of concept wise, there was some. This is a wafer that's coated with chemotherapy drugs? Correct. And you leave it there? Yes. And it slowly dissolves I see. Uh, uh, over time so that, you know, you're treating the tumor without having to wait for recovery and then start the radiation, you know, usually about three to four weeks later. So can we do more there in the beginning is the question, really. So there's a new technology called intraoperative radiation therapy that we're very excited by. This is at the time of surgery, after you finish taking out the tumor, you have a cavity, right? Sure. And there's probably microscopic cells there. And so the idea is, can we give some radiation while the brain is open? And, uh, and that's what this technology is, interoperative radiation therapy. And we're working with several companies talking about using their technology for neurosurgical treatments. Um, this technology has been really used and advanced in the breast cancer field, where after breast cancer surgery, you do localized radiation. So we want to incorporate this new technology for our brain tumor patients as well. And there are many reasons scientifically that this may be helpful because number one, you're getting rid of the cells microscopically that, that you couldn't see. Sure. Number two, 
you may be helping immunotherapy later on because it killing the cells uh, helps the immune system recognize that these are bad cells. Um, and so, you know, we are going to test this type of approach and see if we can change the trajectory of the disease from the beginning. And are you doing that now? Doing. Have you started doing that now? Not for the brain. We do it for the breast. Okay. Um, our colleagues in breast oncology do that. And we are putting uh, together a trial with the company uh, to, to do this prospectively. That's exciting. Um, you mentioned the immun- immunotherapy. This is a word I hear a lot. What exactly is it? So immunotherapy is a broad term. Uh, it means stimulating the immune system to do something, kill an infection, kill a tumor. In the cancer field, it's killing tumor cells. And so there's varieties of immunotherapy, okay? So there's vaccines, where you make a vaccine against a protein that's specific to the tumor. Then that involves just injection. Sometimes it involves taking white blood cells out, stimulating with, with that uh, foreign antigen and giving it back to the patient to uh, make even sometimes at the time of initial surgery, when we take out the tumor, we can make a vaccine from that tumor as well. You can make a vaccine from the tumor. Correct. Because the tumor has all the abnormal proteins, right? The the proteins that that form the cancer are all mutated. And so you can take that tumor and make a vaccine out of it that you can give to the patient down the line. How do you do that? Do you take a sample and then... Yeah, so at the time, of, and this is very important, and especially if you want to if you want to incorporate new treatments in the beginning, you, you have to really talk about each patient before they go to the OR. So what we're doing is at the time of surgery, we collect tumor tissue from the OR as well as blood, and then we analyze it in different ways, including sequencing of the tumor to find out what sequencing the, the DNA, the, the DNA of the tumor to figure DNA and RNA. Okay. To figure out what are the mutations that are specific to the tumor so that you can make a vaccine with those pep, uh, proteins, basically. Uh, like a peptide vaccine, like a flu virus vaccine, you know, like a flu vaccine, basically. Because you have to sequence it and strain it each every year because it changes. And each patient is very different. That's why it's individualized for that patient. Um, but you can also just take all the proteins from the tumor and just use that as your vaccine as well. So there's different methods of making vaccines from the tumor tissue itself. How long have you been doing this? How long have we been doing this? So the, the, the field has been doing it probably for about 20 years. But, you know, it was small, immature technology 20 years ago and then a little bit better in the last few years. And it's improving. You know, the science of immunotherapy uh, from the vaccine point has improved quite a bit. But there are new approaches of immunotherapy. Uh, the probably the biggest thing in the last five ten years is checkpoint inhibitors. These are the drugs that you know got a Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, and these are basically um, antibodies that it, uh, disinhibit the immune system to go and attack the tumor. Meaning, like in general, cancer forms when your immune system is not working properly. In fact, cancer inhibits the immune system. That's the reason you get cancer. So if the immune system is not recognizing the cancer, it can't do its job. And so there are signals from the cancer cell to the immune cells telling the immune cells, I'm not foreign, I'm okay, leave me alone. And, and these antibodies, uh, the drugs come in and get rid of that inhibition that the cancer is uh, doing to the immune cells. So now the immune system recognizes the cancer 
and is able to kill it. So it reveals, the, these drugs reveal the cancer right. to the immune system. Right. The can cancer is uh, cloaked yeah. by the, uh, uh, with these proteins called checkpoint, uh, uh, checkpoints. Um, and so these new drugs, and there's probably 20 plus checkpoints and many drugs in development now that are targeting these different proteins that are making cancers grow and preventing the immune system in doing its job. And these are being these are in use now. Some of these are in use now. Yes, you this know. is the big uh, growth in the last ten years. It started in melanoma. Now it's spread to lung cancer, bladder cancer, prostate cancer. You know, it seems like many cancers, including one of the bad cancers, triple negative breast cancer, which frequently goes to the brain as well. Um, metastatic cancers to the brain from breast to lung melanoma is an even bigger volume uh, of disease than glioblastomas and other primary brain tumors. And that's actually something that neuro as neuro-oncologists we deal with quite a bit. All, all these other patients with melanoma, lung cancer, breast cancer that are metastatic, they tend to go to the brain. And we help manage those patients as well with, with the medical oncologist, with the radiation oncologist, and, other, and neurosurgeons and other colleagues. So. It, neuro-oncology is really a very broad field uh, covering neurology and oncology and autoimmune neurology that um, involves all these new drugs in development, checkpoint inhibitors, vaccines, oncolytic viruses, and new technologies. So we, we are trying to make a difference in, in brain cancer, and we're incorporating as many different technologies and tools that we have that we learn to use from all these other cancers and applying them in brain tumors. When a patient comes out of surgery, that's when this all of those things come into play, if they haven't come into play in the surgery already. <clears throat> right, right? Now, mo right now, most of these technologies come later. Mm. And at P&I, we're trying to get them earlier in okay. use at the time of initial presentation. Okay, so when somebody comes out of surgery, that's when you step in and become the quarterback? So um, normally... We, as soon as a patient is diagnosed, as a team, we know about the patient. And ideally, we need to know before surgery because some of the clinical trials that we have involved getting tumor from the OR and making mm. a vaccine out of it. So ideally, we need to know about the patient immediately because we have to go and talk to the patient about this option and talk to the patient about possible intraoperative options, as well as because they're all clinical trials. So we need to be able to do informed consent on these patients and have them consent to be able to do these research uh, clinical trials. So you're, you're quarterbacking from the word go then through all of this. Correct. Right. In, okay. You know, in, back in the old days, we were always involved later. Okay. But I think, you know, getting involved early is the best way because we're, we have clinical trials even before surgery starts that the patients need to know about and consent for. Certainly. And yeah. so, and we are incorporating many new technologies to be able to use in the beginning uh, in, in many of our new clinical trials. Certainly. So when somebody comes out of surgery, what's next? So once a patient has surgery, we usually wait a few weeks for recovery. Some patients obviously can go out of the hospital and go home um, pretty easily, especially with, if it's a small tumor in a good area or if we use a minimally invasive surgery. Uh, other patients uh, require re rehab uh, stays to help them recover if they've had deficits uh, from the tumor. Um, so then we usually see them you know, within a week or two after surgery 
and then we make plans for their next step of treatment, uh, which either are standard treatments such as radiation and chemotherapy, or we talk about clinical trials and offer patients the trials that we have open at the time. How many trials do you have open at any one time? So for brain cancers, we probably have anywhere from uh, 10 to 15 trials open at any one time. Uh, and this in involves at recurrence, at newly diagnosed. Some of them are metastatic cancers, some of them are glioblastoma, some of them are slow-growing gliomas or meningiomas. So we have a variety of trials for a variety of brain tumors. And how hard is it to get into a clinical trial? Clinical trials are, you know, as you know, these are complex regulated uh, uh, treatment uh, clinical trials. And uh, for most of our patients, as long as they have a good liver, kidney function, and no other comorbidities, most patients uh, would fit into at least one or more of our trials, at, obviously at different stages of the disease progression. Um, it's usually... The, the limiting issue is really that most patients don't live close enough to a center that has trials. Mm. And as you know, as a nation, 80% of brain tumor patients are in the community, not at big academic medical centers. So most patients don't have access to clinical trials because of distance. Just sheer distance. You're living in South Dakota or Oregon. Exactly. Or, or even within Los Angeles, for instance, uh, patients don't want to drive two hours to weekly or every two weeks. I was going to say, how trials. often would they have to come? Just Is it uh, weekly or bi-weekly? Every trial is different. Yeah. Uh, some of them are just monthly visits, but some of them can be weekly infusions to every two-week infusions and other treatments. So, and some of them are just pills, So, but it varies depending on the drug and the trial and the method of administration. Is it easier to get into a trial because this, is, this disease is so, so terrible? Good question. Uh, it's actually hard to get into clinical trials. And even though the numbers are not big of glioblastoma, we don't have enough trials for all the patients that mm -hmm. we see. They, because of functional status or uh, the amount of resection or various factors, many of our patients don't qualify for clinical trials. So we try to open as many trials and give as many options, but unfortunately, a lot of patients don't qualify for trials still. And this, I mean, Southern California, LA, has got to be one of the best places to be for trials, right? I mean, there's such a tradition of neuroscience here, isn't that right? Absolutely. I think at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, we're really building a regional and a national and international uh, research base for us to be able to offer these very innovative clinical trials for patients with high unmet needs, such as glioblastoma, Alzheimer's, and other, you know, really bad diseases where we haven't made progress for decades. And, uh, you know, besides our, our colleagues at PNI, which we are growing every year, uh, we also collaborate with many others. Uh, we collaborated within our uh, family of hospitals, Providence St. Joe's Health, with in Seattle, in Northern California, in Portland, and in Southern California in particular, we, in neuro-oncology, we have established uh, a footprint of care to the local communities through our ministries so that patients can have access to new and novel therapies through clinical trials. This is something that, you know, when we set up PNI, we wanted to make sure that we offer the highest quality and access to these innovative treatments to a broad range of patients all throughout Southern California. And with through Providence St. Joe's Health, 
we want to be able to spread it even further and obviously internationally. Mm. So, you know, so th that was one of our goals, um, not only take excellent care of patients clinically, but to offer these treatments for these very deadly problems that we face. That's one of the advantages and one of the reasons I was excited by Pacific Neuroscience Institute and the Providence St. Joe's Health Collaboration. Because, you know, at any particular hospital, we have limited number of patients. And one of the challenges in our trials, even though we only enroll 40 or 50 patients, it can take three to five years to enroll and finish a study at one site. So by having access to a network of hospitals in Southern California, as well as the bigger network at Providence St. Joe's Health, we can actually open these trials at multiple sites and finish a study within a year rather than five years. And so that's an advantage because the sooner you can get an answer, the mm. sooner you can do your next study and plan for it very quickly. And so not only do patients get access to trials locally, we are able to finish trials faster. And that's an advantage. So we're talking to many, many companies about using our network of hospitals uh, that we are slowly formalizing and making stronger to run clinical trials through, whether it's our idea for um, investigator-initiated studies or w w whether it's a company-run clinical trial. This is a powerful network for us to be able to efficiently ask a question about whether a drug helps patients and then be able to finish enrolling within a short period of time so that we can get an answer and then move on to the next level right away, next, sure. next study. Sure. And so besides our Providence ministries and aligning them in that vision, we're also working outside of Providence with other academic institutions on the West Coast, East Coast, and in the Midwest, where we're setting up a consortium so that we can do even larger phase two, phase three studies across a consortium of sites. Obviously with help from, from the funders, whether it's a sponsor of the drug or NIH or other foundations, we are actively trying to move faster, have these innovative designs and do multi-center trials within our uh, ministries as well as with collaborators outside. So at the Neuroscience Research Center, we are looking at obviously trials that for cancer and dementia to improve their outcomes. Um, we're also looking at um, the psychological side of things and the burden that patients and caregivers go through you know, there's a lot of travel burden, financial burden, and psychological burden a patient with cancer or dementia has. Oftentimes, the caregivers have as much or more burden than the actual patient. And so we're also looking at the caregiver side, what they go through, how can we help them? What is the reason for their burden? Is it financial? Is it the travel, taking off time from work? Or is it just purely psychological, dealing with oh, yeah. a loved one with cancer? So we are using technology as well, whether it's surveys or patient-reported outcomes to help us understand that burden and how, what we can do to help with that burden, whether with our psychiatry dementia team, with the, we have social workers, we have uh, psychiatrists, psychologists to help us understand what's happening and then use that to drive a treatment decision for the patient as well as the caregivers. So you're taking, the, trying to take care of the caregivers. Of course, yeah, because, you know, if the caregiver is the one that's usually bringing the patient to the clinic and takes care of the patient at home, ensures compliance of treatments, et cetera. So, you know, it's a, it's a dynamic that needs to be understood and that we need to address. And that's why having a multidisciplinary team that we have in all the clinics, 
whether it's dementia or cancer or movement disorders, uh, we focus around everything related to the patient and their surroundings so that we can try to minimize the burden that they go through. Well, I think in the old days, the caregiver was, you know, it's on, you're on your own, right? And that's, Correct. you're changing that. Correct. Yeah. You must have people coming from all over the world now for these treatments. Is that right? Correct. Uh, we do. But uh, unfortunately, most patients uh, uh, that we are, that contact us, unfortunately, can't travel. So mm. most of them end up being consultative. Uh, but some can travel, and especially for limited things such as surgery or mm. radiation. Uh, but the innovative clinical trials, it's always been a challenge because you have to stay here mm. for some period of time or longer if you're responding longer. So that's always a little bit of a challenge. How did you decide to make your career in uh, trying to tackle one of the deadliest, hardest cancers? Well, apparently in high school, I wrote a, one of my essays that my mom found is on brain tumors. I don't know. I don't remember why I wrote that essay. But all throughout college and medical school, I was always interested in the brain because I thought it was a cool organ. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, so, yeah. it's a seat of who we are. Uh, but uh, in, in residency, I, I gravitated towards bad things and brain tumors are bad things. I just thought, wow, we need to understand this better. We need to do better. And that's why I focused on brain tumors. What was your undergraduate degree? My undergrad degree is math and biology. Okay, so you math and biology, and then you go to med school. Correct. And you do med school, and then your residency is in? So I did medical school and PhD. And okay. my oh, PhD okay. was actually doing virology, studying herpes viruses and uh, its ability to kill brain tumors. So Interesting. this was the start of oncolytic viruses back in the 90s. And some of those viruses are used clinically now. The same virus backbone is the virus that's used for melanoma that got FDA approved about five years ago. As a delivery for, as a delivery? As an immunotherapy. As an immunotherapy. Right. Uh, this is for localized skin melanoma, yeah. where you inject the virus into the melanoma. It causes cell death and causes inflammation and stimulates the immune system to kill the tumor. That's a herpes virus derivative? It's a modified herpes simplex virus that is attenuated so it doesn't cause all, you know, encephalitis and other bad things, but it's... In, in the, in, but it grows really well in cancer cells and kills them. And then it stimulates the immune system like a vaccine to attack the tumor as well. And you were working on this, this was your, your PhD study was on some of your... Correct. We published on brain tumors and melanoma about 25 years ago. Yeah. Fantastic. And then what? So, then so since then, I've been thinking about brain tumors from the PhD, then on the clinical side. And after my neurology training, I decided to go into subspecialty of neuro-oncology. And um, in Boston, I had many good, great mentors thinking about clinical research and clinical trials that has really helped me progress um, as my career has progressed over time. Well, and you are, I mean, you are tackling one of the, this is a, these are tough, tough cases. And often they end, uh, people don't, don't live a long time. Correct. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, unfortunately, we still have a long way to go with this disease. Um, most patients with glioblastoma die within two years. Uh, and so it's a challenge. But, you know, I remember when I first started out feeling very sad with my first patient that died in clinic and um, or, or going to die. It was hospice discussion. Mm. And over the years, obviously, I've had many, many, many of those discussions, unfortunately. 
Um, but I think I think about what I can do to do better and focus on that side. And I think I limit myself in thinking about mm. any... Uh, well, the sky's the limit, really. I mean, if you can extend someone's life by a matter of months, that's a that's victory, right? Correct. For th this disease, unfortunately, it is about months. Uh, but I think, you know, like I said, one of the challenges we have is these tumors evolve and change. And so our paradigm, I think, is not adequate. And so one of the things that we strategically done and thought about is, can we change the paradigm? This is a very heterogeneous disease, very variable, very complex. And one drug doesn't seem to be doing it. Radiation alone doesn't seem to be doing it. Surgery alone doesn't seem to be doing it. So we need to incorporate all of our tools and technologies in a very stringent way. And some of it's gonna be personalized, meaning one drug's gonna work in one patient, but not another. And so we have to personalize the combinations for each patient. And so one of the approaches that we've developed um, is to try these drugs at the time of surgery or soon after surgery before we start radiation and chemo and see if we can get a bigger bang with immunotherapy and targeted therapy at that point in time. It's a program we call precision immunotherapy in the new adjuvant setting, meaning let's do these drugs before radiation and chemo. Because you know, the, the radiation and chemo help obviously because that's the standard of care, but we do know they affect the immune system. And most patients, when they get these treatments, their immune system isn't perfect. It's a little dampened. So when we're trying these drugs after radiation and chemo, we just don't see the big benefit that we see with other cancers. And this is documented in um, breast cancer, where patients with metastatic breast cancers that fail their standard treatments, uh, when we give immunotherapy, the chance of response with these new immunotherapies, checkpoint inhibitors, is less than 5% or so. But when you give the immunotherapy neoadjuvantly for breast cancer, the response rate goes so, up yeah. dramatically. And actually, when you combine immunotherapy with chemotherapy for lung or breast, that also goes up quite dramatically. So we want to incorporate that type of thinking and technologies in our brain tumor population, which is not the easiest thing to do, because as we discussed, you know, stimulate the immune system in the lung, a little bit of inflammation, a little cough, you can deal with it. In the brain, it's headaches, seizures from the swelling that immunotherapy causes. So we have to balance out the degree of inflammation with the side effects of inflammation. And so we're thinking about those types of strategies as well. What would you say, how would you compare where we are now in terms of the promise of treatment to what you've seen over your career? I'm most hopeful now than I've ever been, uh, doing this for almost three decades now, uh, that we're close to making a huge impact on brain cancer. And it's really about the combination of approaches. And it's really about starting from the beginning when the patient presents with a brain tumor. Even before surgery, we need to do certain things. And we need to be strategic and have a specific plan before surgery, during surgery, immediately after surgery, and, and they're on. So, so we have an amazing team right now of amazing surgeons, minimally invasive technologies that can take out as much tumor safely. We have great scientists, clinicians, who are going to, who, and that we're working on putting together all these plans to really change the trajectory. And you need to do it in the beginning. 
not at recurrence. And so that's what we're trying to incorporate. This is the paradigm shift you're talking about. Th exactly. Yeah. This is the new approach to where we want to go. And, and you know, even when we started five years ago, we're already, we've learned a lot with this initial approach with checkpoint inhibitors for glioblastoma. We have a few patients that have been stable or shrinking tumors without having to need radiation and chemo right away. So it is going to be a paradigm shift. And, um, and we want to do more of this. So we're talking to many companies, incorporating this sort of approach with their new drugs to try to see what the, you know, incrementally increase the response and survival for these patients. Have you been, have you had cases where you're surprised at how well people have done? Yes, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, over the years, it's actually remarkable. Uh, before immunotherapy, we were thinking about what's called targeted therapy, where you have a mutation, and you have a drug for it. Uh, most of these drugs are developed for lung cancer and breast cancer, but um, we've been incorporating those those same drugs off-label or, or as part of clinical trials, and even though the trials didn't show the benefit, statistical benefit, there are clearly cases of patients that responded durably for many, many years, whether it's PDGFR inhibitors like Gleevec, old drug, mm. or EGFR inhibitors, Tarceva, Erisa, or in the new uh, mTOR inhibitors and other kinase inhibitors nowadays, we have seen some patients respond. It's unfortunately not 100%, uh, but it's not zero. It's always in the 5 to 10, 15% range. It's just not at the threshold to get FDA approval, but clearly single patients are responding to m many of these drugs. That must be fantastic yeah. to see somebody... Well, yeah, it highlights the heterogeneity, the, the differences. Because yeah. some patients have the mutations and others. And if you don't know what's happening with the tumor, genetically, you can't pick the right drug for the patient. Yeah, yeah. And so we you know, we blindly throw drugs at patients over the years. And now in the era of personalized medicine, precision medicine, we have to incorporate the new tools and select patients for particular drugs. So we're no longer blindly doing this. This is... The blindfolds are coming off in a bit. Correct. Yeah. On, the, on, the, on the research side, people are looking at biomarkers and picking the drugs. On the clinical side, now sequencing is very um, widely available uh, at almost every institution. And physicians want to know what are the mutations in the tumor. And for certain diseases like lung, breast, you have to know because it changes your uh, treatment mm. uh, from a chemotherapy to a targeted therapy or immunotherapy. So it's changing uh, the paradigm of treatment all across many, many cancers. And in brain tumors, you know, we're just at the tipping point. I think over the years, we will start to do a lot better at selecting drugs for patients. Glioblastoma is obviously a huge focus of Pacific Neuroscience Institute. But, you know, at our Pacific Neuroscience Research Center, we have a broad breadth of experience. We have laboratory scientists that are thinking about new drugs. For instance, for um, glioblastoma, the drug Temidar was approved many years ago. Uh, it works because it actually gets into the brain a little bit. And so one of our chemists actually made a modification, and it turns out it gets into the brain even better. One of your chemists here? One of our chemists at Pacific Neuroscience Institute, Dr. Yanaganda, has been looking at the structure of temozolomide and looking at the patent literature, obviously, and has been able to make better compounds that have better brain penetration. So even though it's the same drug, if you modify it and get it into the brain 5, 10, 20% more, it could have a bigger impact. 
which we think it does based on the data that we've generated, um, including uh, there's about 60% of patients are what's called unmethylated. So they don't respond to Temidar. Even though we give it, they don't really respond. And this new drug uh, looks like it's going to be, it kills those cells just as well as the methylated patients. So Interesting. The innovate, so we are thinking about each disease and trying to innovate even from scratch in terms of drug development. Uh, even for, for instance, Alzheimer's disease and age-related disorders, one of the thoughts is that uh, these diseases occur because the stem cells in your brain are aging or going away, and so you're not regenerating your brain. You know, if you cut your skin, if you take out half your liver, the liver regenerates, the skin regenerates. The brain, it's much slower and harder to do that, and as we age, it gets, it's not as good at doing that. So we have um, looking at technologies and drugs that stimulate neurogenesis, stem cells to, to grow and proliferate. And can that be a treatment for Alzheimer's? Rather than trying to get rid of amyloid and tau, can the, we... The plaques that, that are associated that, with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Can we instead think about the stem cells? And there's data to suggest that the stem cells are growing away, and that's why that's what causes dementia. And so it's a completely different way of thinking about the disease. And, and can we use, uh, develop or use drugs that would stimulate stem cells in the brain? Um, so th those are interesting approaches that we're developing as well. In addition, we're actually using stem cells that are donor-derived, bone marrow stem cells called mesenchymal stem cells or um, uh, from fat or from skin or umbilical cords there's a lot of data in the last few years that those cells, when given to patients, whether it's IV or into the brain, may help the brain recover from stroke, traumatic brain injury, ALS, and, uh, and obviously in our cancer patients, that the small percentage of patients that do survive, they have cognitive problems, they have maybe weakness and other speech problems, and can we regenerate their brain using these approaches as well? Mm -hmm. So th there is a lot of thinking going around now about stem cell treatments, whether it's pill that would stimulate the stem cells to technologies such as transcranial magnetic stimulation or uh, what ultrasound. Is so transcranial magnetic stimulation is when you use magnetic fields outside the head to stimulate um, the neurons in the brain to, to, it's like exercising the brain passively, and then that would stimulate recovery. Recovery, uh, regrowth? Regrowth and recovery. Uh, ultrasound can do the same thing as well. One of the new technologies that you'll hear about over time is using ultrasound to disrupt the blood-brain barrier. So we talked about how the blood-brain barrier yeah. is tight, limits drug delivery. But with ultrasound technologies, you can actually uh, sonicate. You know, you can shake the vessels a little bit so that they open up for a yeah, short yeah. period of time and so that drugs can get in. Fast, fast. And so we're working with several companies using that technologies, not only for Alzheimer's, uh, but also for brain tumors. Uh, so, the, I, how did how did somebody think to do that? Was that is that is that a product of the multidisciplinary sort of, you know, we do this over here, we do this over here, maybe we should combine this? How does somebody come up with that? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of technologies are developed when some guy in a physics lab talks to some clinician and makes a connection. Ultrasound and transcranial magnetic stimulation have been around as research tools for many years studying some basic physiology. And, and when someone thought about, hey, can this be applied in the clinic? 
that's when that innovation transfers to the clinical side. And that's happened for ultrasound and magnetic stimulation over the last decade. And I think you'll see more of that type of technology uh, uh, developing over time. So at the Neuroscience Research Center, we want to be at the forefront of those sorts of technologies. Now we're in an era of digital health, right? So we're monitoring patients using iWatch, we're um, uh, Facebook apps, uh, and other Fitbits, et cetera. So is there ways we can use that technology to help our patients? So one of the things that we have, whether it's post-operative or after chemotherapy, you know, some of the patients end up with a fever, infection, or a complication and have to come back to the hospital within 30 days, right? Readmission rates. So we want to use these technologies to see if something's happening earlier, like a day earlier, a week earlier, sure. so that we can tell the patient, come in, we're going to check some things and maybe proactively prevent the complication. So at the Neuroscience Research Center, we're also working with many companies that are not traditional medical research companies to help us uh, develop new approaches to preventative uh, treatments for our patients with cancer and, and surgery and radiation. How do you fund that work at the, at the research center? So the Pacific Neuroscience Research Institute has a foundation, Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation, that is a nonprofit entity, medical research and education. And so much of the philanthropy that we get helps us fund our own ideas and funds clinical trials, and, and, but most of the funding comes from industry. So we collaborate with companies that have products, whether it's devices or technologies, and we work with them to do the clinical trial. But obviously we have our own ideas and that's where the philanthropy really helps us a lot because we can actually act on those ideas by doing our own clinical trials. Certainly, and these are off, these sound like they're often greenfield, brand new ideas that you're pursuing. Correct. That, yeah, and you have that you have the liberty to do that in that setting. Correct. And the time. We, and the, time. the, the philanthropy really helps yeah. us drive innovation, right? Yeah. Uh, any particular company has a trial with their drug, and that's it, right? Yeah. But we have the liberty, if I thought drug X, Y, and Z from these companies is helpful, or this technology, then the philanthropy allows us to really think out of the box and put together a better clinical trial that we think is gonna make a, a bigger difference. Uh, but until we do the trial, we don't know, of yeah, course. Yeah, but that's the key. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. I'm really glad you're on the job on this. Um, and it's been a delight to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Dr. Kasri, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.